welcome to our continuing 2021 educational webinar series. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. And we help manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Catherine Walters, a management side labor and employment attorney representing employers of all sizes, including privately and publicly held companies, federal and state government contractors, institutions of higher education, trade associations, and other nonprofits. Industries served include financial and banking, manufacturing, defense contracting, education, healthcare, professional services, insurance, construction, technology, retail, real estate, transportation, restaurant, and hospitality. Catherine partners with clients to develop creative, practical, business-oriented solutions, and she focuses on identifying current and emerging trends to assist clients with managing and preventing emerging risks. Emphasizing strategic thinking and focused solutions, Catherine provides employers with a sophisticated counsel that has become necessary in today's complex business environment. She appears before federal and state courts and administrative agencies, and currently is a partner at Bible Rutledge LLP. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. For this Super Ninja, our team is, has been turning the spotlight on Betty M. Perryman, Administrator at Southern Avenue Family Practice. Betty says, I have worked with my doctor for many years and I really enjoy the interaction with patients. We have a concierge practice and we are able to spend more time with the patients when they come in. Our staff has been together for a long time and we work well as a team and it is a pleasure working with them. Congratulations, Betty. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. So Catherine, it's a pleasure to welcome you here again with First Healthcare Compliance. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Catherine. That was a lovely introduction and congratulations to Betty. I think uh, being a ninja, I, I aspire to something like that. I wanted to add one little thing that to um, my uh, introduction that Catherine provided, um, just to point out that I may be with a very small uh, firm at this time. It's a small boutique firm that allows us 
to provide a sophisticated legal service um, with a personal touch. I uh, spent over 25 years in international and national firms and um, about two years ago decided to make the move to small law where I could really focus on my clients and providing, again, um, great legal services, but with a personal touch in my little boutique style. So it's a pleasure to be here with First Healthcare Compliance. I've worked with them over the years, and I think that they're also excellent. So let's move on with the program here. Um, today's agenda uh, really is going to be all about um, the current status of things under President Biden's brand new administration. I'll touch briefly on the presidential election and its outcomes and um, focus then on President Biden's anticipated impact on U.S. labor and employment policy. Um, now my mantra though, and you're gonna see me use this mantra, you're gonna see slides about it, but this is my motto for the next couple of years. It's buckle up, buckle up America. Um, so we had Biden versus Trump. Um, and interestingly, um, the over 159 million Americans voted in 2020. And this was the largest voter turnout in American history. It is also the first time that more than 140 million people voted. Uh, interestingly, the Electoral College was the same uh, as it was when it was Trump versus Clinton. It was 306 to 232, the same margin that Mr. Trump beat Hillary Clinton by in 2016. And at that time, he referred to it as a massive landslide victory. Um, in this particular case, each of these gentlemen uh, got more votes than any other uh, presidential candidate in US history. It's just that Joe Biden received more than Mr. Trump did. Um, now, I will point out that the midterms are going to be held in November of 2022. All 435 House seats are up for grabs and 34 Senate seats are up for grabs. So my perspective is that Mr. Biden needs to act now while he has a Democratic House and a tiebreaker Senate. He may never have as good an opportunity to get things done as he does now. And I'm saying that not because I want to see a lot of different laws and I wanna see a lot of changes to the laws, but um, quite frankly, I think a very good management attorney also considers the safety, health and well-being of employees. And I do think that a lot of things that happened during the Trump administration were not good for employees, even though they were excellent for employers. So I'll be touching on that kind of dichotomy as we walk through this. Um, as I indicated, I'm thinking that Joe should carpe diem, seize the day. Others think he needs to be more conciliatory like Mr. Obama was to try to build consensus given our political climate. Um, but again, that hasn't worked well in the past. And as a result, if Mr. Biden thinks that he wants to achieve some things, it seems to me that he better move now while he can, because who knows what's going to happen in the midterms and he may never have this much political capital available to him again. So moving back, moving back in time a little bit, if we look at the Trump labor agenda for the last couple of years, the focus really was on deregulation. Um, deregulation meant rolling back multiple executive orders issued by President Obama, reforming multiple immigration laws and practices and policies, weakening labor unions, 
and creating jobs. As I said, deregulation was the key word. And uh, I thought this was just a funny picture because this is kind of the way Mr. Trump approached a lot of things. Some of it worked really well and some of it didn't. Um, with respect to the jobs uh, creation, um, it was happening kind of at a slowish pace during the Trump administration. But unfortunately with the pandemic, any jobs gains that he had made during his term were eradicated and net net more jobs were lost than created during his term. Um, and also during the um, Trump labor agenda uh, term, we saw tremendous budget cuts and agency downsizing and rollback of multiple Obama era executive orders and a lot of employee protections. Um, the DOL of course had fewer resources for investigation. And as in most uh, Republican administrations, um, it was more focused on conciliation, more outreach education and clarification, um, more conciliation really, and more flexible in interpreting the law to favor employers. Um, really, there was a tremendous suppression of DOL enforcement activity. On the other side of the coin, it was a very decent four years for employers who might otherwise have been slammed by DOL audits and other enforcement activities. Uh, plus the NLRB and Wage and Hour issued numerous employer-friendly guidances, letters, and other rules and regulations, sidestepping or otherwise cramming down many of the initiatives that had begun under the Obama administration. Interestingly, um, the Department of Labor, uh, a lot of it uh, shrunk due to attrition. Uh, lots of folks retired with nice buyouts. There was a lot of attrition without replacement. And so the fewer employees, then the fewer audits and investigations, less enforcement, more conciliation, and what I considered to have been a fairly low profile DOL, um, the highest profile aspects of the DOL really were the NLRB where um, they were focused on uh, moving, eliminating a lot of the union and uh, collective bargaining friendly procedures and practices. Uh, I think that uh, the NLRB had a high profile during the Trump administration, but it wasn't really functioning in the fashion that it was intended. Um, interestingly too, in 2019, uh, Mr. Trump was able to tap a prominent management defense attorney for DOL secretary. This was after multiple failed attempts to retain a labor secretary. Um, so Eugene Scalia, of course, the son of the late Supreme Court justice um, came in and the Department of Labor uh, became jokingly referred to as the Department of Management. Um, as I said, Eugene Scalia is a well-regarded management defense attorney. He came from Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher at that time. However, according to a former senior OSHA official, um, Mr. Scalia believed that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration should have no role in managing the COVID-19 pandemic um, and that this belief has been credited with exacerbating the failure to control the disease, particularly in the workplace. Um, interestingly, in October of 2020, just before the election, the New Yorker characterized Mr. Scalia's tenure as Secretary of Labor as one of antagonism towards labor and weakening of workers' rights and referred to him as a wrecking ball aimed at workers. The Labor Department changed rules that made it easier for firms to not pay workers for overtime, allegedly made it easier for restaurants to shortchange waiters on tips. Again, we're talking about the tip pooling issues 
and made it easier for companies to not provide paid sick leave. Uh, the definition of independent contractor was changed to make it easier for firms that use contract labor to avoid paying the minimum wage, overtime pay, and other benefits. And as we'll discuss, um, the Biden administration has already taken aim at most of these policies, and um, they will be revisiting uh, OSHA and COVID-19, overtime and the minimum wage enforcement, tip credit and tip pooling, independent contractor status, and joint employer status. Um, interestingly, too, we have seen the typical uh, Democratic, Republican, Democratic, Republican pendulum swing. And um, under Mr. Trump, the pendulum had been swung very far to the right. And under Mr. Biden, it's not going to swing in the middle. It's going to swing very far to the left. Um, now, Mr. Mr. Biden is not a progressive liberal, but he is a very liberal Democrat when it comes to labor and labor policy. Not as liberal as Bernie Sanders, um, who is going to have a role in a lot of what Mr. Biden achieves. Um, but I do think that we're going to see you know, the flip and the flop, the back and the forth, the yes and the no, and so forth. Um, we're going to see a lot of changes, and we already have. It's really about priorities. Um, and so in January, uh, immediately, Mr. Biden moved to institute a broad regulatory freeze on a number of the last-minute rules issued by the Trump administration and directed agencies across the federal government to withdraw or delay action on potentially dozens of regulations. Um, in essence, there's something called midnight rulemaking. And a lot of agencies are pushed into issuing rules, um, trying to get policies through just before an election um, in the hope that they aren't frozen or otherwise um, a stop put to them under various um, different procedures that are available, whether it's the CRA, um, or some of the um, early, uh, later types of things uh, related to the midnight rulemaking. So um, Mr. Biden has basically directed agencies to immediately withdraw any newly finalized rules that hadn't yet been published in the Federal Register, and then to consider 60-day postponements for rules that had already been published but that had not yet taken effect. Um, and this really, um, Get, opened the door for the Biden administration to seek to block some of the changes that were about to take effect, such as the independent uh, contractor rule. Again, work, it's basically referred to as worker classification regulations. Um, so we're focused on this independent contractor rule, worker classification regulations, and how that will impact uh, gig workers in particular, but not just gig workers and others who might be considered independent consultants, but who rely almost exclusively on one employer for their income. Um, other things that we're going to see besides the delay on the independent contractors is on tips. Um, there's a number of things having to do with tipped workers. Um, one thing has to do with tip pooling and whether it's okay for front of house employees to be required to tip to, to pool their tips so that back of house employees get a portion of that. That serves to reduce the wages that front of house employees actually earn. And many of them, not all of them, a lot of um, hospitality uh, employers do not use the tipped wage 
rates, which are substantially lower than the regular hourly wage rates. They just pay hourly wages and then they use the tip pools. Um, but a lot of employers are still using the lower tipped worker wage rates, which can be anywhere between you know, two, two and change and four and, and change. And then um, they must live on uh, the balance is made up by tips. Um, and by sharing all of these tips with the back of house workers, the front of house workers were making less. And under a new rule that um, the Trump administration pushed out in the, in the, in the waning days of uh, the administration, um, there was also the ability of um, tipped workers to uh, work at different jobs at their tipped wage rates. So um, they were actually going to have to roll napkins and do other things that didn't include waiting tables for tips um, at the tipped wage rate. So those things have been held up now. They are blocked and we're gonna see some changes coming there. I doubt that we're going to see reinstatement of the independent contractor rule um, or the uh, tip workers rules that um, have been um, blocked for now. Um, some other things that we're looking at, of course, is where are we going <laughs> with, um, with Mr. Biden? Um, back to the future, I'll say to some degree, um, I will say that Mr. Biden was 100% behind and supportive of much of President Obama's labor policy. Um, and so we're gonna see a lot of the Obama labor policy uh, creep back into the Biden administration. But I will say this, Mr. Biden is his own man. And um, he was actually a bit more aggressive in, in practice and um, the concepts that he espoused as vice president. So I expect that as his own man, he will actually be more aggressive in seeking worker protections and overhaul of uh, various uh, laws and regulations that really in this day and age require overhaul, particularly in the wage and hour arena. Um, Mr. Obama was indeed aggressive, but much of his good work had to be done via executive orders and reinterpretation of current laws. Um, as I indicated earlier, he um, unfortunately, in my opinion, did not take full advantage of um, a supportive Congress in his first two years uh, because he felt that being more conciliatory would be better for the country. Um, and as a result, um, he encountered probably the most obstructionist Congress in US history, uh, maybe until recently. Um, so we will see Mr. Biden seek to put new laws in place um, and he's going to use executive orders to achieve some goals where perhaps he doesn't have the time or can't get certain legislation through. Um, but again, it gets back to their concept. If we can't pass new laws, we will reinterpret and enforce the ones that we have. So as we go on through with this back to the future theme, um, I'm just highlighting some of what Mr. Obama's administration did. It had an extensive impact on labor and employment policy, again, even without support from an obstructionist Congress. And I'm not gonna read this slide to you, but you can see it was just more of everything that was intended to protect employees. The interagency cooperation um, was a big deal because what we were seeing was uh, communications among wage and hour, among the OFCCP, uh, so it would be wage and hour and OFCCP if they were dealing with a government contractor or OFCCP and the EEOC and so forth. 
Um, and I think that we're just going to continue to see more and more of that enforcement litigation is going to increase again. Uh, we will have seen more audits, uh, more discrimination filings, uh, more, more compliance uh, regulatory things happening. And again, this is because uh, Mr. Biden has pledged to increase the number of field investigators um, and he's going to enhance enforcement at uh, the various agencies with a focus on technical violations. Um, at the OFCCP, we're gonna see enhanced enforcement um, with a focus on recruiting back wages and technical violations. Pay equity is going to be big across all of the uh, different agencies, particularly at EEOC, OFCCP, and Wage and Hour. Um, and in essence, employers need to really get prepared with some of their wage and hour practices. Um, it's always a good time to do a self audit, but um, as time is passing within the new administration, the time is even better to self audit yourself. Some of the other things under the Biden labor agenda will be to reverse uh, a number of multiple Trump era executive orders. We've already done that. I think we'll see reinstatement of Obama era orders, whether they're reinstated in full as written or with a different spin or more of a polish to them, but we're gonna see some of the same concepts come out. Uh, we are going to see an amazing focus on pay equity. Um, there's a goal to increase the federal minimum hourly wage from the current 725 to $15 an hour. Most of you probably are aware that um, that part of the pandemic relief bill or the Save America <laughs> Act um, was eliminated um, by the parliamentarian as not, it wasn't permitted to be in, included in that bill. So uh, they're gonna have to go at the $15 an hour another way. And I hate to say this, but I, I, I appreciate that. I don't think that uh, the pandemic bill was the place to put a $15 an hour increase because uh, there needs to be studies done. There needs to be a lot of um, airing of this issue on both sides of the coin. And um, it's more than doubling to the current minimum wage. I agree that the minimum wage must be increased substantially, but I don't think putting it into the pandemic relief bill was the place to do it. Um, it's a good start, but uh, they're gonna have to do it um, straight. Uh, we're gonna see a reinvigoration of the NLRB's focus on employees as opposed to employers. Um, and then of course, strengthening of unions, the ability to unionize, uh, encouragement of family, friendly legislation, the restoration of the broad definition of joint employer, um, increased protections for gig economy workers who are currently being misclassified as independent contractors in many cases, although in many cases it is appropriate to classify them as independent contractors. Remember in labor and employment law, and particularly with respect to independent contractor classification, it's a fact specific analysis and it's uh, difficult to provide really a broad or generalized approach to some of these things. Um, there's a move on to limit non-compete and no poach agreements. Uh, whether that happens, I don't know. I can't predict that it's going to happen. I know that it's on Mr. Biden's agenda and it's something that he doesn't like and would like to get rid of. Um, and I think we have to be on the watch for that. I don't think it's in the top five um, of immediate of immediacies, but. I think we should be watching out for that. And then I know Mr. Obama would like to, uh, excuse me, Mr. Biden would like to restrict employer use of mandatory arbitration agreements and class action waivers. 
Um, other aspects of the Biden labor agenda include the nomination of Boston Mayor Marty Walsh for DOL secretary. And in studying all of the potential nominees, I had actually chosen Julie Sue to be the new DOL secretary and Marty um, to be in the DOL, mostly uh, working with the National Labor Relations Board. But I'm happy to say that Julie came in second because she has been nominated for the deputy DOL secretary. And um, Marty Walsh being in first um, is likely going to um, sail through the confirmation hearings he's already gotten through committee. Um, he's a very interesting man. Um, he is union guy through and through, blue collar through and through, um, very focused on collective bargaining. Um, he's been involved with unions since childhood because his father was um, um, in the laborers union. Um, so he's a Boston fellow. He is the son of um, Irish immigrants, I believe. Um, he started working at the laborers union local at the age of 21. He served as the president of the union, was elected to serve as a Massachusetts state representative for 16 years. And around the age of 42, he went back to Boston College at night to get his bachelor's. Um, he was also elected to head the Building and Construction Trades Council. And then he was elected to the mayor of Boston in 2014 and has been in that position ever since. Uh, what folks who work with him say is that he's flexible when it comes to working with management and he is a progressive liberal on social issues. He's pragmatic with respect to problem solving and he does strive for unity and consensus building, but don't be misled by that. He is a very strong proponent of employee rights and um, he and Joe Biden walk hand in hand as blue collar guys. So I think that we're gonna see a very different attitude in the Department of Labor. Um, even under Obama, the Department of Labor was extremely activist. He had um, some very good people as, as under the Clinton administration. Um, but I think we're gonna see a, a very strong focus now on union issues and collective bargaining. Interestingly, less than 11% of the US workforce are unionized. Um, However, Mr. Biden has indicated that one of his primary goals is to increase union membership, to make it easier for employees to organize and to um, enhance the collective bargaining process. So I think that Mr. Walsh is probably best suited for this type of, a, of an agenda under Mr. Biden. With respect to Julie Sue, um, she is the daughter of Chinese immigrants, and she speaks both Mandarin Span and Spanish, in addition to English, of course. Um, before entering government, she worked in the nonprofit sector uh, with vulnerable communities. Uh, so she was seeking workplace justice for vulnerable communities. And um, a fascinating um, little tidbit of information, she received a MacArthur Fellowship, which is also known as a Genius Grant. And uh, this receipt was for her adv advocacy on behalf of immigrant laborers. Um, she comes to us from the California Labor and Workforce Development Agency. And at that agency, she managed agencies charged with wage enforcement, occupational safety and health, unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, and job training. 
She also oversees agencies that regulate labor management relations in agriculture and state and local employee workforces. Um, and most of that has been largely excluded from federal oversight. Um, so I think, again, we're going to see um, a Department of Labor that is going to focus more on what I consider to be kind of the nuts and bolts areas, uh, labor law, OSHA, occupational um, uh, and apprenticeship issues, wage enforcement, um, whereas in the past we've seen more focus on um, discrimination and um, uh, things that weren't quite as, I think, workplace safety and workplace oriented. Um, I think discrimination, of course, is very meaningful, and we, I'm going to be getting into that in a few moments, but um, we're going to see a larger focus on OSHA, on the National Labor Relations Act, and um, wage and hour issues, uh, particularly pay equity. Um, so will policy reforms be successful? Mm, I think so in many, in many regards. Will they have more luck getting new legislation through the Senate if they act quickly uh, while there's still a, uh, it's a 50-50 Senate, but uh, Vice President Harris is a tiebreaker. So they have a better shot at getting new legislation through at this time. Um, however, there are some issues with respect to the filibuster and whether uh, um, a bill is going to pass by 51% or 60 votes, 51 votes versus 60 votes. So there are issues there, but even short of full support from Congress, I think the Biden administration can certainly achieve many goals. And as I said, if they can't pass new laws, they'll simply reinterpret the ones that they have. So as I said, folks, buckle up. We're gonna see a lot of change going forward. Now, President Biden has definitely been busy um, since his inauguration on January 20th, he's issued dozens of executive orders and frozen numerous Trump regulations and other actions, especially that midnight rulemaking that we talked about earlier. So I'm going to take the rest of the time here to discuss uh, the items on this slide. I'm going to just hit each agency as quickly as I can and uh, propose legislation as it goes. So some executive orders that affect federal contractors in the workplace. Remember that an executive order um, that directs an employer to actually do something like pay a higher wage or to require employees to mask, that can only apply to federally regulated employers like federal contractors or a federal government workforce. Um, so what we see uh, typically with executive orders is setting the table for what will happen in the private sector um, after the, the, um, the federal sector has been regulated. Um, other types of executive orders will typically um, require an agency to do something. So what we've got currently moving out there is um, COVID-19, uh, several things uh, where Mr. Biden has sought to um, fix <laughs> The COVID situation. So there are several orders relating to COVID and um, uh, basically taking care of the pandemic. But with respect to the workplace, um, he has basically ordered the Occupational Safety and Health Administration 
to issue revised guidance to employers on workplace, on workplace safety. Um, and they did follow this already um, on February, prior before February 4th, they issued um, some emergent, some new guidance, and then they're required to issue emergency temporary standards by March 15th. And I suspect that that will happen based on the speed with which OSHA moved to um, issue the revised guidance. Now the order didn't provide any details about the measures that OSHA must consider, but says that the guidance must be science-based, including with respect to mask wearing. Um, so in essence, uh, we looked to some of his other executive orders and one of them has to do with protecting the federal workforce um, and requiring mask wearing of anybody who is on a federal property, any federal employees, and again, federal contractors. And so a lot of this includes testing, tracing, physical distancing, occupancy and density standards, personal protective equipment, air filtration, enhanced environmental disinfection and cleaning, telework options and vaccine administration. So I think that that executive order highlights what we're going to see um, when OSHA issues its emergency standard. Uh, so be on the lookout for the emergency standard. I will hit what OSHA has done thus far later in this program. Um, some of the other um, executive orders, uh, one of them is called Economic Relief for American Families and Businesses. That is the American Rescue Plan. In essence, um, we are, he is looking for the $15 minimum wage, uh, which is in line with the new Democratic Raise the Wage Act of 2021, which was introduced in January. Um, so what Mr. Biden is trying to do is raise the minimum wage, at least for federal contractors and other workers to $15 an hour. Currently federal contractors as of January 1st have a, an increased wage rate. It's either 1090 per hour or 1095. I honestly don't recall at the moment, it just went up. Um, another one is ensuring that the future is made in all of America by all of America's workers. Uh, this executive order focuses on um, in, in control over the Buy American Act waivers, which are currently managed by individual government agencies. Um, and so Mr. Biden has created a Made in America office within the Office of Management and Budget, the LMB. And this uh, office, new office, will have centralized control over Buy American Act waivers. And um, I think we're going to see a lot of stringent uh, denials <laughs> of um, requests to uh, use other uh, products made in other countries uh, for some of our federal contracts. It's going to be interesting. And that is intended to create more jobs, of course, in the United States, and also to reshore jobs from other countries or United States owners. Um, another area where we've seen executive order activity um, is in racial equity. Um, uh, at least four of Mr. Biden's executive orders are focused on advancing racial equity and the support for underserved com uh, communities. Um, and one of the executive orders that Mr. Trump had issued back in, I think it was September, um, was Executive Order 13950, which had prohibited the concept of, quote, divisive concepts, closed quote, in diversity and inclusion training. Uh, by the federal government, federal contractors, and federal grantees, even if they aren't federal contractors. And in essence, um, 
this was just a mean-spirited order that um, provided the opportunity for employees who were unhappy with the diversity and inclusion training that they were receiving to call a hotline and report that a hostile environment was being created in their workplace. Um, the OFCCP um, was in charge of that hotline and has shut it down. <laughs> so that's dead and over. It was just another one of those really mean-spirited things that had a tremendous impact on the ability of employers in the federal contractor area to actually execute on required diversity and inclusion training. Um, some of the other things that uh, we've seen is the prevention and combating of discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. Now, this is an executive order that ensures that the US Supreme Court's decision in Bostock, um, where the court ruled that the prohibition on sex discrimination in employment includes a prohibition of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity is to be applied immediately by all federal agencies and so forth. And so again, it doesn't change anything for employers um, outside of the federal sector, but it again, it highlights what we're going to see happen with respect to new legislation and agencies. And I'll talk to you about the Equality Act, which um, has just come through the house. Um, and that is really intended to um, push or actually instate the Bostock decision. And I'll talk about the Bostock decision in just a second. Um, I don't wanna spend too much time on Obama era executive orders that uh, had been rolled back by Mr. Trump. Just to say this on this slide, um, the ones in green are the ones that are still alive. <laughs> the one in gray is the one that has been weakened by the retraction of the one in black, the Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces Act. Now, I was all for retracting the Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces Act. It's called the blacklisting law in um, normal parlance. And it provided for extensive reporting of labor law violations when bidding on a government contract for goods and services of over $500,000. It had very stringent standards and just even one, one nuisance claim of discrimination might've uh, prevented um, a large contractor from getting uh, a bid. It was to have been effective in October of 2016, but it was enjoined, um, except for something called the paycheck transparency provisions. And so there is some, some um, difficulty, uh, I guess some, I'm, I'm not coming up with the right word to describe this, but by pulling back the Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces Act um, executive order, it did limit to some degree some of the other executive orders that uh, had been passed in the Obama era. I think this is all by way of saying that I expect Mr. Biden to come back to the fair pay and safe workplaces um, issue. Now, whether we see the same language or some, I would hope, um, I don't wanna call it dumbed down, but some lesser, less stringent language in what I expect him to do in the near future, um, it would be good. But I think we're gonna see another version of the quote unquote blacklisting executive order. Uh, but I do hope to see if it does come out, I do hope it will be slimmed down and less stringent and make it a little bit less difficult for employers 
that you know battle internal issues on a regular basis. It will make it a little less difficult for them to continue to get contracts and provide work for their employees. All right, moving forward, let's talk a little bit about the Biden Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, the OFCCP. Um, interesting choice for um, the new head of OFCCP, Jenny Yang, a former commissioner and chair of the EEOC during the Obama administration. She is amazing. Um, she is a lawyer. She is um, really focused on pay equity. She was a strong proponent of what many of us uh, refer to as the horrific EEO1 component two pay data collection rules that were back and forth in the courts and were finally basically just uh, beat up so badly that um, it changed the face of the EEO1 compensation data collection uh, re requests and requirements. Well, the impact of all of that back and forthing and courts and injunctions and so forth was to actually change the filing of your EEO1 forms from uh, September 30th to March. <laughs> so we'll see what happens with the EEO1 form. Um, I, I'm straying a little bit over to EEOC territory by talking about this, um, but she was a large proponent of that issue. And so what she brings there um, is the focus on hiring and pay equity enforcement. So the OFCCP is going to go back in the direction of pay equity, as well as systemic discrimination relevant to hiring and systemic discrimination relevant to pay equity. Um, I pity um, federal contractors that um, end up with um, some of these pay equity audits, but they should really be focusing on looking at what the OFCCP is planning to do on pay equity and start again self-auditing, um, checking to see if there's anything negative going on in their pay uh, issues and um, looking to see if there are differences between males and females or whites and minorities. Let's find out what those issues are and whether they are defensible. Um, so I think what we're going to see is um, a strong return by the OFCCP to aggressive enforcement activities. Um, it's very interesting because when Mr. Trump took office, the OFCCP was on the verge of being absorbed into the EEOC. Um, it was small, it was underfunded, it lost a lot of people, and under Biden, we're going to see um, it probably redouble in size, and he's already working with the OFCCP to put together a lot of domestic employment policies. So watch for the um, reinvigoration or the resurrection of the OFCCP under Jenny Yang. Um, the Biden EEOC, uh, he's already been able to name Charlotte Burroughs and Jocelyn Samuels. Uh, both of them were Democratic EEOC commissioners. And um, the EEOC is still majority Republican, but once uh, the appropriate terms are up, uh, you know that it's going to go full Democratic. So the EEOC may lag a little bit behind the OFCCP in terms of issuing um, policy, you know, massive policy revisions and enforcement. But I do think that it's headed in that direction as quickly as it can get there. The primary priorities for the EEOC in the coming years are LGBT rights, again, narrowing the wage gap, and that's more of a minority 
and female issue. So it will work hand in hand with the OFCCP on those issues. And then COVID-19 guidance, interestingly enough, um, the EEOC has not yet taken a strong position on whether having COVID or lingering effects of COVID constitutes a disability under the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, I wanna go back to, for just a second to the LGBT rights uh, priority um, and remind you about Bostock versus Clayton County. You'll recall that last year, the US Supreme Court held that under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, sex discrimination was found to encompass sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, gay and transgendered people are also protected from workplace bias based on sex. Um, this case was the resolution of a trio of LGBT bias cases, and it also was the resolution of a circuit split. Um, and that was interesting. The 11th Circuit said sexual orientation was not covered by Title VII. The Second Circuit said sexual orientation is covered by Title VII. And the Sixth, sixth Circuit said that gender identity is covered by Title VII. And then on top of it, there was an agency position split between the EEOC and the Department of Justice. Um, up until Mr. Trump took office, the Department of Justice sided with the EEOC with respect to um, whether sex discrimination included sexual orientation and gender identity. After the Trump uh, administration began, the DOJ split from that position and wouldn't, wouldn't assist the EEOC with enforcement, which is why the U.S. Supreme Court uh, took the case, and, and you know one of the reasons the U.S. Supreme Court took the case, and why um, resolving the circuit split, um, the actual meaning of Title VII's law, and um, resolving the agency split was so important. And just so you think about it correctly, um, the Bostock case simply interpreted current Title VII law. So in essence, the interpretation that sex discrimination included sexual orientation and gender identity simply means exactly what it is. That's what it says, and that's how it should be interpreted. So I would anticipate a slew of cases um, that will be filed uh, from prior to Bostock being decided, but based on basing the, um, the jurisdiction of the courts on Bostock. Um, all right, so I, I die. I digress. Um, what about equal pay um, under the EEOC and the Department of Labor? Um, excuse me, the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division. Uh, again, we've got a gender pay gap. Um, we are going to see more focus on the concept of equal pay, but I think the pay equity issue um, gets to equal pay. So look at pay equity. Um, pay equity is really about the criteria that employers use to set wages and it must be sex and race neutral. And that's where we end up with a lot of the pay equity systemic discrimination cases, meaning that an employer's criteria, while it appears to be race and sex neutral, actually creates a discriminatory impact on those individuals. So we're gonna see a lot of that. And that reminds you as an employer look at the criteria that you use to set wages, make sure that it is defensible. Uh, if you've got seniority reasons, if you've got educational levels, 
you know, look at some of the things that might actually have an impact on whether you're a female or whether you are not white. Um, some of the educational requirements might be suspect under this concept. Um, certainly other things are suspect, such as whether um, somebody can do, you know, a math test or whether um, somebody's got a criminal background. Uh, so we've got to really watch out what the criteria are, not only for pay equity itself in terms of setting wages, but for hiring of people. Um, remember, under the federal law, the Equal Pay Act is enforced under the Wage and Hour Division that exclusively applies to sex. It's males and females in the same job. Under the Lilly Ledbetter Act, it basically allows an employee who's had a continuing violation, it could be over 20 years old, but if that violation has continued through the decades to result in a lower wage for her or a lower pension uh, payment, that's a continuing violation. And so it basically is an extension of the statute of limitations. And then of course, we look at executive order 11246 for federal contractors. Um, and then of course, there are myriad state laws that deal with equal pay as well. So watch all of that, it's very important. When we get to the Biden wage and hour division, um, again, we've already talked about the priorities of increasing the federal minimum wage from 725 to $15 per hour. Um, Mr. Biden has already moved forward with his uh, assisting workers impacted by COVID-19, not only by getting this uh, new COVID package, COVID relief package, at least into the Senate where it's now being filibustered, um, but getting that moving and almost passed, I expect it'll pass in some form in the near near. Um, he's also focused on OSHA and the COVID-19 emergency standard. And then some of the other things that we're gonna see at wage an hour, uh, of course, is what we've mentioned already, the worker misclassification and gig economy issues, um, renovating the joint employer rule and bringing it back to where, in essence, employees that worked for both, for more than one employer had recourse against both of them under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, we're gonna see more of an, in, an impact on remote work because of course, remote work is the new normal and the issues that flow from remote work relate not only to wage and hour issues, but in some cases OSHA. Um, and of course, harassment follows everybody everywhere all the time. <laughs> so we're gonna continue to see um, a lot of focus on remote work at wage and hour. And I think it's going to expand um, beyond just wage and hour issues. And of course, um, increased enforcement relative to minimum wage and overtime violations. Uh, these, this list of low wage industries will likely continue to be targeted, but I expect it to be expanded into less low wage industries because I just believe that this is what we're going to be getting from wage an hour in the coming years. All right, um, some potential future changes. I know that there are some rumors that um, Mr. Biden isn't thrilled with the current salary level that just went into effect January of 2020. Um, where um, employees moved from a $23,660 per year um, annual salary to around $35,000. It was lower than what uh, the Obama administration had wanted, um, and they ultimately ended up you know, somewhere in the middle. Um, but there's a rumor that uh, Mr. Biden is going to reopen that salary level analysis 
and it's my perspective that that's going to be a really difficult road to hoe since it just happened within the last year and a half here. But um, another way around or at it is going to be the duties tests for exemption. Um, and that's where I would go if I couldn't raise the exemption or the salary exemption level um, sufficiently, then I would come at it by taking a look at the duties tests for exemption um, because the duties tests could easily be refined to make it more difficult for folks to be considered exempt under the, under the law. And then of course they would become non-exempt and subject to overtime and minimum wage. So lots of things I think are coming in the wage and hour area. Um, but let's take a quick look too at the National Labor Relations Board. Oh boy, that was a fun one. Um, big personnel shakeups, the very first day in office, um, Mr. Biden fired the general counsel. And the second day he fired the deputy general counsel because neither of them would step down voluntarily. So Peter Robb and um, his uh, deputy general counsel, Alice Stock were both fired <laughs> during Biden's first two days in office. Um, President Biden has named Jennifer Abruzzo, who is a former NLRB acting general counsel to serve as the general counsel for NLRB, and she's gonna have to get confirmed. And then the current NLRB acting general counsel, Peter Orr, has moved very, very quickly. He is executing a lot of the Biden agenda, you know, as a one-man band. He's rescinded over 10 of the massive guidance letters that had been very employer-oriented, um, a number of the GC memos and so forth. All of these were issued under the Trump NLRB. And um, in essence, he's moving forward really with uh, the Biden agenda immediately. Um, in essence, the goal is going to be to empower the NLRB or basically re-empower it to provide more worker protections and more extensive remedies for violations. Um, under the Trump administration, the NLRB had been, um, if you were an employee side or uh, union side person, you'd say they were pathetic. They didn't do anything to protect employees. In fact, what they did was roll back a lot of employee protections reinterpret um, a lot of the different rules and everything would have favored employers. Um, we're gonna see rollbacks <laughs> of all those policies. And you, again, as I said earlier, the pendulum swings, we see flips and flops, you know, yes and no, it just back and forth. It'd be really nice if um, there was some consistency from administration to administration um, so that employers and employees alike could adapt. Um, but as I said, uh, there's gonna be a focus on Strengthening worker organizing, excuse me, strengthening worker organizing, collective bargaining, corporate accountability. There is a goal to eliminate as many right to work law state statutes as possible. We still have a lot of right to work states in this uh, country. Um, and the goal is going to be to eliminate um, some of the laws that uh, make it possible for employees who have. Who, who choose not to be members of unions to not be members and not pay union dues and so forth. Um, there's also the PRO Act, which is the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. Um, and that's going to be um, really a ripping down and rebuilding of every single uh, thing on the uh, wash list that um, um, Mr. Obama and Mr. Biden had been working for. Uh, over the years, and uh, if the PRO Act passes, 
I really think it's a brand new era for employers. And we're going to be back to dealing with our handbooks. We're going to be back to dealing with um, you know, really difficult situations before the National Labor Relations Board, even for employers who aren't unionized and aren't dealing with um, um, worker organizing. It would just be basic employers because all employees have Section 7 rights. And we're going to see more private employers being sucked into NLRB proceedings if they have their way. But I think change will come more slowly due to the current makeup of the board. Um, as I said, and I believe in August, there, there's going to be a change there. But um, that's going to be a tough one. And if Mr. Biden has difficulty getting some of the pay equity stuff through the legislature, through Congress, excuse me, um, he's going to have way more difficulty getting some of the National Labor Relations Act uh, revisions through Congress. So this is going to be interesting and fun to watch. Let's move on to the Biden OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Um, this was an agency that I personally felt sorry for. This agency is such an important agency to the American worker. Without OSHA, people would die of accidents, diseases, and all kinds of other problems at work um, on a much more regular basis than they do now. Um, remember, Mr. Nixon, Richard Nixon, actually created OSHA back in his administration. That's when Republican presidents actually, you know, did things like that. In any event, OSHA from 2017 to 2020 was lower profile, but it was doing a lot of behind the scenes work, getting ready for a change. I mean, they were just busy without being able to be um, brazen about it. Um, in 2020, they had a focus on COVID. And they issued a number of non-mandatory guidances because they were not allowed to get deeply involved. As I indicated earlier, uh, Mr. Scalia didn't want them involved with the COVID issues. Now um, OSHA is already diving into the pool. It's a higher profile. We're going to see a renewal of their strength and a reinvigoration of their activity. Um, we're going to see uh, Mr. Biden says he's got the goal to double the number of inspectors. So we'll see more inspections, more enforcement. Um, he's already named Jim Frederick as the acting deputy assistant secretary for OSHA. And um, I just feel that uh, when we look at OSHA, we're going to see that agency roar back to life. And it's not going to be so much about enforcement with them as it is going to be about training, um, educating, uh, working with employers to make sure everybody's up to speed. And after they're satisfied that they've done what they have to do on that side of things, that's when they'll start their enforcement. But OSHA is invaluable to the work to, to worker safety. And it's been sad to see them um, basically had their head held underwater for the last couple of years. Um, now let's talk about more of the Biden OSHA. And this gets back to COVID. I'm going to zip through these slides because I know we're getting a little short on time. But um, as I indicated, President Biden issued an executive order on January 21st um, requiring OSHA to issue updated guidance. And they did so. The guidance is called Protecting Workers, Guidance on Mitigating and Preventing the Spread of COVID-19 in the Workplace. It includes non-mandatory recommendations to assist employers to recognize and abate hazards. It is advisory and informational but it signals OSHA expectations for the emergency 
temporary standard that has a target date of March 15th. Um, I do commend you to take a look at the guidance if you are seeking um, a more structured approach or information all in one place. Um, the guidance itself uh, focuses on the CDC recommendations and combines them um, with their own guidance, but it does provide recommendations. I'm not gonna read them all to you, but these are all explicated in the OSHA guidance on their website. So I would commend it to you to read. Um, the prevention programs, uh, they, they provide not only key measures for limiting the spread and um, discussing the roles of employers and employees and responding to it, um, they're really focused on um, making sure that employers get up to speed in a consistent fashion with each other. So my sense of this is that OSHA is going to put a lot of effort into doing what it was not really permitted to do until now. And we'll see better guidance. Employers are gonna have um, much better guidance in terms of how to achieve things rather than cobbling it together uh, based on CDC standards and um, you know, 50 different states um, standards that have been um, impacting employers. With respect to the OSHA as well, um, we're gonna see some other anticipated changes. Um, general duties clause uh, is the bane of most employers existence because that's the catch-all, but we're gonna see more general duties clause citations relating to COVID-19 and the violations of the CDC guidelines. Again, once OSHA believes employers have had an opportunity to get all this stuff up and running, they'll start the citation process. Um, It'll be nice to see the resurrection of the permanent infectious disease standard. Um, interestingly, the Obama administration had put together a massive pandemic project uh, before they left office. They spent years studying, working, and putting together a pandemic um, resource that was left for the Trump administration and which basically got thrown in the trash um, on the first day of that administration. Um, had that been available to the United States public, perhaps things would have been different. And I'm saying that, you know, again, as my personal opinion, but it's something that is already, that already exists. And uh, with some fine tuning um, based on what we've learned from this pandemic, I suspect we're gonna see a permanent infectious disease standard issue quite soon. Um, the OSHA anti-retaliation rule let me suffice it to say that um, it is okay for an employer to drug test an employee who reports an accident at work so long as the employer has a reasonable belief that the employee may have been involved either in the accident, maybe under the influence of drugs and so forth. What was happening under the anti-retaliation issue was that employees were afraid to report um, accidents at work because they didn't want to be drug tested. And a lot of employers were drug testing, reporting employees simply in retaliation for reporting the accident. So um, we're gonna see an enforcement on, and a reinterpretation of what has happened to that rule. But I think we'll see a new, a new product and then anti-retaliation um, will be issued. So employers will not be permitted to retaliate against employees who report workplace accidents because 
you know, it's better to report that accident than to not. Um, oh, we'll see OSHA and state OSHA um, agencies are going to see more interaction and oversight there. Um, a lot of states have their own OSHA, so they're not typically following federal OSHA guidelines. And um, I think there's going to be a move to kind of homogenize as much of that as possible. And um, we'll see some additional updates having to do with reporting. Um, some of the proposed legislation that is out there, um, so the Family Act has made it through the House, as has the Paycheck Fairness Act. Um, in any event, the Family Act is focused on providing paid family leave. And so it's basically wage replacement for employees who would take time off work um, as if it were under the FMLA. Um, so it would be really for an employee's own serious health condition, the birth or adoption of a child, to care for a child, spouse, or parent with a serious health condition and qualifying exigencies arising from military deployment. Under the Raise the Wage Act, of course, we all know that that goal is to raise the wage to $15 per hour by 2025. That's what the goal is there. The Equality Act is the LGBT anti-bias law. Um, and it's really an effort to um, not only codify Bostock, but to um, expand that coverage into housing accommodations and education. Um, the American Rescue Plan um, is, was passed February 27th by the House, is now sitting in the Senate after over an 11 and a half hour reading of the bill in order to kill time. Um, we'll see if the Senate passes it. Um, I expect they'll pass it, but I could be wrong. And then um, I, I mentioned earlier that there will likely be some move on the federal, at the federal level to limit or eliminate non-competes and no poach agreements. You can never eliminate all of it, particularly in the sale of a business, but um, a lot of mobility, uh, employee mobility is impacted by non-competes and no poaches uh, between employers. And um, I think Mr. Biden's goal is to allow people to move more easily among jobs um, in order to continue climbing up the wage ladder. Uh, by not being allowed to move, you often can't get a better job with more pay. And you're either stuck where you are or you have to do something else for a year or 18 months and so forth. So we're gonna see that. I don't know when that's gonna pop, but I would be surprised to see that sometime maybe in year two. All right, and the rest of my slides really focus on how will the Biden labor agenda impact enforcement activity by federal agencies? Um, I'm just gonna slip through these because ultimately I know I'm out of time and Catherine is a strict taskmaster, but um, we'll see basically everybody turning back to an enforcement posture, uh, more audits, more administrative litigation, more emphasis on pay equity, Oh, the rise in retaliation charges. We're gonna see a lot of that, particularly with respect to COVID. Um, and because LGBTQ is now considered sex for sex discrimination purposes, we're gonna see a lot more um, action there. The Me Too movement will continue to play a big role, but it's 
kind of taken kind of a middle seat, not a back seat in recent uh, months. Um, again, OSHA will return to pre-Trump status with a larger role in COVID suppression. And we'll see more wage and hour audits, more joint employer reviews, more independent contractor and gig worker reviews, um, more wage related audits by state agencies because they're gonna be supported by the federal um, interagency behaviors. And um, really just strengthening, strengthening of federal labor policy, more enforcement, more family friendly legislation, more rulemaking, um, more things that employers don't like. So really it's back to buckle up everybody, just buckle up. <laughs> and I truly hope that you've enjoyed this program. Um, if there are questions, uh, we'll take them. And I believe Catherine has indicated too that if we can't get to your questions, um, we'll certainly respond to them via email. So thank you all for your cooperation and attention. And um, I'm going to turn it back over to Catherine. Thank you so much, Catherine. I very much appreciate it. That was an excellent presentation, um, full of all kinds of obviously new information for us. And so we do have a few questions. Uh, the first one is, this relates to your comments about the OFCCP. And um, so the question is, um, can you talk about who falls into the category of a, of a government contractor? And should we be worried if we are handling COVID testing or vaccination sites? Okay, that's two interesting questions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, somebody that is a federal contractor is typically an employer with a federal contract of 50,000 or more dollars. Um, some of the smaller contracts get you coverage. But if you're an employer with 50 employees and at least $50,000 in federal contracts, you're covered by executive order 11246 with respect to having affirmative action plans. Um, and then we've got what you call the minorities and females plan, which is executive order 11246. And then you've got veterans, uh, protected veterans plan under um, BEVRA. And then you've got the Rehabilitation Act, um, individuals with disabilities plans. And so individual employers that are contractors or subcontractors with contracts in excess of $50,000 are covered by the law and must have uh, minorities and females plans if they have more than 50 employees. If they have fewer than 50 employees, um, they're still covered by the law, but they don't have to have affirmative action plans. Um, with respect to um, having a veterans and an individuals with disabilities plans, the threshold for the dollar level is higher. It's $100,000, um, but ultimately um, federal contractors should be prepared to deal with diversity and inclusion and affirmative action. Now, um, the other part of that question was, should we be worried if we are doing COVID screening or COVID vaccination, I think is the question. Um, I'm gonna say it depends because early in this process, uh, particularly for COVID testing, um, the different agencies doing the federal contracting were not careful about whether um, some of the federal contractor requirements applied. And so 
um, I would say that now that they've gotten the hang of it, you're still a federal contractor, but your contract with your contract with the agency that you're contracting with, whether it's Health and Human Services um, and so forth, um, that contract is your roadmap to your coverage as a government contractor. And typically what I've been seeing is that these particular contracts are now excluding a lot of the executive order 11246 obligations to have an affirmative action plan and to engage in some of the um, affirmative action recruiting and to have the uh, plans for um, veterans and disabled individuals. So I would say that you're still a government contractor, but it is likely that you are not subject to a lot of the employment requirements that um, a typical manufacturing or other type of government contractor might be like a bank is a government contractor in most instances, and they would be required to have all three forms of affirmative action plan, manufacturers and so forth, they would have all of that. But um, for these particular services contracts, um, you're likely a government contractor, but there are likely going to be um, a tremendous number of exclusions in your contract that says that you don't have to pay um, prevailing wages under the Service Contract Act, that you don't have to have affirmative action plans in place and do the kind of recruiting that was, is typically necessary. So the answer is um, to that one, check your contract, see how um, explicit it is. And if you have questions about whether you're covered um, with respect to various aspects of being an affirmative action contractor, contact your uh, contracting officer at the agency you're working with. That's my okay. answer. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next one's uh, an interesting question. Um, is COVID a disability for purposes of the ADA? That's an interesting question, as you said. And the reason um, it's a good question is because I bet it is, <laughs> but the EEOC hasn't been in the position to be able to take a position on this yet. And so for now, we are um, really looking at COVID as um, we do the analysis. So if a person had COVID, but they're now healthy, then no, they didn't have a disability. But there are other people that have lingering effects. Um, perhaps they've got lung damage or other forms of damage resulting from COVID. So I don't believe that we would say that COVID itself is a disability, but the effects of COVID could certainly constitute disabilities uh, going forward. So I think as with almost everything under the ADA, employers need to really look at everything on a granular fact-specific basis. Um, the fact that somebody had COVID likely has no impact under the ADA, but the fact that somebody is now still in recovery six months later or maybe had a minor stroke or uh, has lung damage and so forth, that will get you to ADA coverage. So that Yeah, that's back. what I was thinking. Yeah, I was thinking that too, maybe the, the effects of something, you know, of, of COVID, the... Definitely, you know. definitely. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of like, and I, I hate to digress or actually go so far, mm -hmm. ahead, but if you're looking at marijuana, okay? Mm -hmm. um, right. An employer doesn't have the obligation to allow people to use marijuana. However, if they have health issues, 
that marijuana assists, then they actually um, are covered by the ADA and the marijuana is part of that coverage. So it's, it's kind of interesting. So we, we talk more about effects than in, um, you know, the basic facts in those cases. Do you have anything else for me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was thinking, boy, we could go down a rabbit hole with that one. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, let me, uh, wait, we were running, we're running way out of time. Um, let me ask one more really quick question. Um, let's see, how will the independent contractor rule affect the use of gig workers? What about um, task boards and other marketplaces? Is everyone an employee? So do you have anything <laughs> that's sort of um, wraps up around that? Yeah, yeah that's interesting because um, you know, there, this whole gig economy, a lot of it is driven by these task boards that are out there. They're just platforms mm -hmm. where people can put, uh, I need somebody to illustrate this, um, you know, this children's book, or I need somebody to um, illustrate this group of greeting cards or whatever. It's just a single one-shot deal. And uh, uh, they get together on this task board and they make their own relationship. They make their own arrangements. And ultimately, um, the question there becomes, is that person an employee or an independent contractor? And um, that person who is just hiring somebody to do a small project for them, you know, they're not intending to be an employer or pay employment taxes and so forth. So um, the Obama administration, when they were dealing with um, both the independent contractor and even the joint employer regulations back in in that era, um, their position was that everybody's an employee. <laughs> okay, so under the independent contractor analysis, the position really was everybody's an employee unless otherwise proved. Okay, so I think that the, as I indicated earlier, <laughs> a lot of these laws have not been updated and a lot of the regulations haven't been updated in, in decades. And so when we looked at the wage and hour laws at like 1938, um, the law hasn't kept up with the times. And so this gig economy has gone, has blown past what anything anybody ever anticipated could happen um, under, under the, 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 the Fair Labor Standards Act and the accompanying regulations. And so I think a large scale analysis is gonna to have to be done into the gig economy and how it really works and the people who are involved in it and what their expectations are. Because from what I've seen, um, a lot of the gig workers don't want to be considered employees. Um, many of them have full-time jobs and they're just doing this as a little sideline here and there and they like the variation. Um, the other aspect of this too is unemployment compensation. And are these people considered employees to the extent that they would be entitled to unemployment compensation simply because they got a job on this platform. Um, so who's the alleged employer in that case? Is it the platform where the, um, the, need, the person who needs the, the uh, task meets the person who provides the task? I have represented a couple of these platforms and uh, we've successfully been able to keep them from um, unemployment compensation liability, but it was always a new frontier on that side of the coin because these are simply platforms and there's a, a contract that people use to use the platform. But other than that, you know, the uh, platform isn't taking any money from the employee 
Um, the employer pays a fee to use the platform, um, but it's the platforms that have been alleged to be the employers in these situations. And I think that's wrong. So that's a long way around of responding. Um, I think a lot of the gig workers truly are independent contractors. And what they're probably going to have to consider is doing an independent contractor analysis that takes into account different factual circumstances. I think some of these one size fit all, um, you know, five points or six points to independent contractor status. I think that they, you can't count on those anymore. So there's gonna be, again, that fact specific analysis. I think we're gonna see a classification regulation come out, but they're gonna to have to really focus on the ability of, um, of the person making that judgment to see all aspects of it. So I would predict that while the position is going to be that everybody's an employee, I think that that position will be um, chewed away at um, and whether or not they provide us with multiple ways to analyze this situation is yet to be seen, but they've got to focus on the fact that the law never anticipated this and um, how, how can the um, Department of Labor regulations best adapt to a changing economy? I'm not sure if I answered so the question, but. <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're saying that, oh, getting a bit of an echo there. Um, but so you're saying that if um, somebody um, uh, was hired as like a 1099 um, in independent contractor, um, the issue is coming up when they then um, perhaps are starting to work way more hours perhaps than a what a gig worker or an independent contractor normally would traditionally be working is that correct that's a or, a part or, or a part-time worker perhaps because then when, when do they get into the territory of like part-time worker you know what's the yeah. difference between you know independent contractor versus you know a 1099 versus part-time yeah, I think that's a really important point to make. And, then, and that gets to one of the elements of the analysis, and that is whether the person relies either solely, exclusively, or in large part on this one employer for their income. Um, and so when it gets into part-time work uh, on a regular basis, unless the individual actually has their own, um, you know, whether they're a corporation or whether they're an LLC or something else, or they have their own shingle, basically, and um, unless they're actually providing their work for others, um, and it's not exclusive to one employer, um, and you know, there's um, the person is paying corporate taxes and doing all those things. I think you know sometimes you'll have that clear-cut picture of an independent contractor, even if they work 20 hours for an employer in any given work week. Uh, maybe it's because the project is long. But if you've got somebody that starts off as an independent contractor. And they're only working for one employer, maybe even two employers in this regard, and they're doing 20 hours a week for each employer, and that go, goes on for an extended period of time. I think you've got yourself a real employee, and I think you've got yourself, mm -hmm. they're a part-time worker. Um, and so what happens in those situations, the employer says, I can't 1099 you anymore um, because I'm afraid that I'm going to get audited and then we're going to have a problem. So I would like to hire you and you can either be part-time or casual, but I need to pay taxes on you. We're gonna to have to change the way we do our fee structure. So there's opportunities right. there for people to get jobs on the one hand, um, but there's also negative opportunities for people to end up 
not being able to do fee projects, uh, long-term projects without being considered to be employees. So it's, okay. it's an interesting issue. Um, and I think it's there's multiple slides to it. Okay. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for being here today, Catherine. It's been um, a really interesting issue. And, um, and so I wanted to thank you so much. Did you have um, maybe uh, uh, one or two um, words to, that you wanted to leave with us um, for, for wrapping up? Well, as you can see on the slide that I've kept up, it's, it's buckle up. Um, I really do think that employers shouldn't be afraid of the Biden employment agenda. Um, I do think that they're not going to be as happy with, um, with new legislation as perhaps over the last four years. Um, but as all employers know, the pendulum does swing. So I think a lot of this gets back to go back to where you were uh, during the Obama administration and, and just get, get yourself back in that mindset. Um, that's really what I think. I think that things are going to happen. There's going to be reasons for them. Um, and I know that it's a terrible nuisance for employers to have to learn new rules or to be involved in multiple types of suits and audits. Um, and I'm not saying that it's a good thing, but um, I think they should just get prepared and do it in a calm and um, careful fashion. Start with self-auditing your wage and hour practices, self-auditing your employment uh, discrimination, look at your employee handbook, just really start taking a good look at everything in your employment um, area and focus on what your weakest links are and beef them up. And then um, with OSHA, make sure that you are paying attention to a lot of OSHA pronouncements because they're gonna come fast and thick. Okay, great. Well, um, actually that's a good seg because um, I wanted to mention to our attendees um, to um, be sure they have their eyes and ears open because um, our next webinar is gonna be held on March 23rd. Um, that's, that's the very next webinar, so you'll get information about it. Um, it's gonna be held on March 23rd at 1 p.m. Uh, make sure you sign up for that also. And it's focusing exclusively on OSHA and the new um, safety guidance um, for the considerations that came out on January 29th. So, um, uh, and that's by um, Jennifer Gimler-Brady. She's a partner at uh, Potter Anderson and Karoon in Wilmington, Delaware. So um, if you could, um, if you're interested in finding out more about the, the new OSHA guidance, um, which you definitely should be, make sure you sign up for that too. So you'll get um, uh, registration information on that um, uh, later on today um, after you, um, after this webinar ends. Um, Catherine, I wanted to thank you so much again um, for being here today. Thank you so, so much. It's always my pleasure to work with you, Catherine, and First Healthcare Compliance. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, attendees, thank you also for being here. Um, please use the contact information which you would find. Um, don't forget to download a copy of the slides um, that's um, either on the side or the upper um, part of your screen. Um, you can also send us questions um, and we'll forward them on to Catherine. Um, please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. 
you can register for future webinars or request a demo excuse me, of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.